Well, before we turn to Psalm 73, I want to ask you to turn to, uh, back in the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. First Timothy four. Seven through ten. I'll be talking about training in godliness this morning. First Timothy four. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, godliness, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness. Well, any of you who might have read comic books, particularly back in the 60s, 70s, 80s maybe, will know that there were several pages in the back of every comic book just filled with ads for all kinds of different things, Uh, mail order ads, mail snail mail back in the day, for, for stamps or coins or toys or clubs you could join. And one of the most prominent and memorable ads was for Charles Atlas. Charles Atlas was a famous bodybuilder whose dynamic tension exercises were, were capable of turning 97-pound weaklings into strapping muscular hunks, men who would be able to keep other muscular guys from kicking sand in their face on the beach and stealing their girlfriend. All you had to do was send off for his program, and voila, a few weeks later, you'd have muscles too. Well, it'll come as no surprise to you to learn that I was a pretty scrawny middle schooler back in the day. Not that much has changed. So I talked to my brother, and we decided that we would send off for information about the program. We would risk the stamp, as the ad said, sending a letter, yes, a hard copy piece of delivered mail to Mr. Atlas. Well, several weeks later, we got a response from Charles Atlas Associates. I say this because Mr. Atlas himself had passed away at the age of 80 in 1972, this thing had been going on for a long time. This, this story, my story, dates from about 1978 or 79. Well, the letter came, and it, and it came with it, the hard sell and the price. Well, it was a bunch of money. I don't have any recollection of exactly how much, but it was way more cash than my brother or I had. So we had to give up our dream of muscular manliness. Little did we know that Mr. Atlas would write us in several weeks later if he hadn't heard from us and offer us the program at a discount. Well, it was still too much money. Well, fast forward another month or two, you get another letter from Mr. Atlas. He's offering the program at half price. What a bargain for me. Well, it was still too much money. Imagine our surprise when another month or two later, 
we get an inquiry, a, a, a correspondence from Mr. Atlas, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you the whole thing, all 12 lessons. It's like 1250, all up front, and you get the whole shooting match. Well, and he told us how much he wanted us to succeed with his program. So, my brother and I, we sent Mr. Atlas our money. The big day came, and our manila envelope arrived in the mail from Mr. Atlas, and inside were all 12 lessons. This is about a quarter inch thick. Looking like they'd been run off an old Xerox machine from 10th generation originals. But we finally had the program. And my brother and I, we set about doing these dynamic tension exercises twice a day, every day. And we, this went on for a couple months. We were, we, were, we were committed to it. We were in training. We disciplined ourselves. And you can imagine the dramatic results that... Res- <laughs> well, nothing. Well, I've reflected since that the success of the program probably has a whole lot more to do with the genetic raw material of the participants than it does with their discipline or the effectiveness of the exercises. As 1 Timothy 4 says, bodily training is of some value. But for my brother and me, Charles Atlas' program was an irreverent and silly myth. Fortunately, the training and discipline I'm going to commend to you this morning has the promise of being far more effective far more fruitful than my brothers and my experience with Charles Atlas. The the kind of discipline we're talking about here is empowered by the Holy Spirit and depends only on your genetics as a child of God. Look back in 1 Timothy 4, in verse 10. Paul is saying that the end, the purpose or the goal to which we toil and strive as believers is godliness. He says, Rather, train yourself for godliness or discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. That's what we're aiming for. And godliness, he says, is really valuable. It's even more valuable than our physical fitness, than our physical health. Godliness is really important. So what is this godliness that Paul's talking about, and where could we turn in the Word to learn something about godliness this morning? Well, as I've studied this topic over the years, our text for this morning in Psalm 73 is a chapter that just comes up repeatedly in a couple different categories. Psalm 73 is a rich resource for us as the situation it describes and the people, the attitudes and behaviors that it describes and models tell us a lot about what godliness is and a lot about what godliness isn't. What is godly and what is ungodly? But it also serves as a kind of case study, if you will, for godly living, as it both models and supplies a a kind of training program for godliness. If you want to see a good example of what it means to train yourself for godliness, right in the middle of the kind of struggles that we have Every day, Psalm 73 is going to offer you a good example of that this morning. It's because it's, it's in the very crucible of temptations and doubt, like his struggle here, that godliness is revealed. So let's look there in Psalm 73 and, and study a bit about this struggle that the psalmist has. You know, in the first half of the psalm, he described himself reflecting on it in verse 21, he says he was embittered. 
He's describing his, his attitude there in the first half of the song. He's upset. He's, he is despondent. And why? Because the bad guys are winning. Have you ever asked yourself, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the bad guys, the ungodly, seem to win all the time? Have you been troubled thinking, it isn't fair? Perhaps you've prayed, you've talked to the Lord, and you've said, why am I struggling in life? Where the psalmist was, he was in a door you seemed to have it easy. This is where the psalmist was. He was in a desperate condition. He was on the verge of throwing in the towel, giving up. He's beginning to think that following God just isn't worth it. Not, not if this is the way that things are going to turn out. We too can, we, can be troubled when we look at this really common situation or circumstance at a single point in time. You know, I think perhaps the psalmist spent a bit too much time thinking about this, right? He's, he is meditating on this, if you will, from verses 2 through 14. He reflects that he had almost stumbled. He almost slipped. The psalmist had a crisis of faith. He had a really hard time with this. Psalm, uh, verse, uh, there in Psalm 73, verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He says, I was like an animal in the way I responded. You ever acted that way toward God because you were bitter and angry about something? I think I have. You think God has made a mistake. You're tempted to think that God doesn't love you. It's an awful place to be. Well, let's follow along with the psalmist and see what he observes about the wicked, about the ungodly. Because as I said, we can learn a lot about what godliness is by looking at what godliness is not. And of course, he observes that everything seems to go swimmingly for the wicked uh, all the time. But here, we want to look a little deeper at the underlying attitudes and behaviors he describes, the character of, of the ungodly that shapes their actions, that shapes all these despicable actions that seem to go unpunished. And in, not just unpunished, in the psalmist's tortured frame of mind, it seems like these behaviors are even blessed. So here are the words, look there, that, that we see used to describe the attitudes and behavior of the ungodly. In verse 3, they're described as arrogant. Verse 6, proud and violent. Verse 7, indulgent and foolish. Verse 8, scoffing, menacing, threatening. And verse 9, boastful toward God, proud on the earth. So let's distill these a little bit. Let's reflect on what these say about the character of the ungodly. Well, first... The godly person is arrogant. In verse 3, we see he has no concept or realization of the very real and near authority and presence of God. In verse 11, we see the godless boast, and he says, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Well, when he says this, the godless person is really saying, God knows nothing. He is not here. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. In his heart, the godless person is far from God. 
He shakes his fist at heaven. He has no interest in drawing near to God. He is foolish. He does not realize either how wrong he is about God, how present he is. The the senses of the godless are dead. Senseless to his presence. And Psalm 73 says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from thee shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Well, secondly, the godless person does not sense that they have any obligation to God's authority. Arrogant, proud, boastful. They have no interest in His will or His ways. Verses 6 through 9 describe, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. This word picture of a tongue strutting through the earth. Just a little piece of flesh, but such a picture of insolence, of pride, of rebellion. The godless person has an an independent attitude and a complete disregard for God's commands, His authority, and His Word. Well, third, we learn something else if you'll reflect there on verses 6 through 9, and that's that the godless person has no trust or dependence on God at all. Can you imagine him ever waiting on God to meet his needs? As a rebellious and independent person, he's going to go his own way and do his own thing. And what if he needs anything? Will he turn to God? Will he pray or ask or wait? No. He'll take what he needs and take it by violence. He will not walk by faith. He's going to take it by force. He's greedy, indulgent, and in his violent greed, he has no regard for God and no love for his neighbor. Well, fourth, and perhaps quite obviously, we can see that the godless person has no love for God. They love themselves supremely, indulging every pleasure to exalt themselves. Verse 4, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are well-fed and well-groomed. One of the men in our elders' meeting this week said this description reminded him of a seal, both fat and sleek. Verse 7 says, their eyes swell out through fatness like a healthy sea lion or seal. Or, as it occurred to me, Jabba the Hutt, um, I think, kind of gives us the picture. It says, they're not in trouble as other men are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't appear to encounter trouble. And they don't have a conscience. They've, they aren't buried any sense of guilt. They're not stricken with grief or remorse for any of the things that they've done. Verse 12 says, they always seem to be at ease. They don't seem to go to work. They just seem to get richer. And God is the last thing on their minds. So the psalmist sees these awful things the ungodly do. He reveals in his meditation a bit of the character 
and attitudes that shape these behaviors we see on this list. And of course, he sees the happy and fruitful lives that they're enjoying entirely apart from God. And it just kills him. It is eating him up. We think, my, what awful people these godless people are. And like the psalmist, we, we're troubled about the course of the wicked and the way they seem to be getting away with it. We're eager to see God give these folks what's coming to them. Well, we do well to remember one important thing. At one time, as it comes to these attitudes, we were just like them. We were just like them. We didn't love God. We didn't trust Him to provide for us. We didn't care about how He wanted us to live. We didn't care to know Him or be close to Him, yet the Father had great mercy on us. It's worth turning to Titus chapter 3. I'd invite you, encourage you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. Verse 3 is going to sound really familiar. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds like the front end of Psalm 73. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We held attitudes just like the ungodly, just like these godless people. Now, we probably didn't act out to the full extent described in Psalm 73, but we had the same kind of rotten heart, the same rotten insides, and our condition was hopeless. We couldn't save ourselves, but He had mercy on us and saved us, not because of good things we've done, but by grace. Through our calling on His name, trusting in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as payment for our sins. Well, not only has He saved us gratefully, He's also changing us. As we continue to walk this earth and follow Him, He is rescuing us from the near shipwreck, fall-off-the-cliff kind of spiritual battles that we see right here in Psalm 73. So what is godliness? Well, for most of my life, I'd understood godliness primarily in terms of righteous living, of godly character, of growing in Christ-likeness, godliness being about growing more and more like God in His upright character. And this is not at all an inappropriate understanding. In fact, Jerry Bridges, in his classic work, The Practice of Godliness, which I'd recommend to you, likens godliness to our behavior and attitudes in conformance to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And to this, Jerry Bridges adds humility and contentment, holiness and thankfulness. 
These are all good things that would qualify as godly characteristics, and these may in fact have been much of what Paul was thinking in 1 Timothy 4 when he recommended godliness and the discipline of godliness to Timothy. But there's also a dimension of godliness that is about mindset. It's about perspective and disposition. It's indicative of a Godward life, a God-oriented life, a heart inclined toward God. These features of godliness, they're relational. They have very much to do with our walk with God, our experience of life with Him, our heart and attitude toward Him from moment to moment. We begin to live life looking to Him, inclined toward Him, and we live less and less like the godless because looking to Him changes our affections. When we put our faith in Christ and His perfect sacrifice for sin, we're brought into a different relationship with God. We can become a different kind of person from the inside out. So godliness is not only about the improvement of our character, but it's about the inclination of our heart toward God. Not only about the sanctification or improvement of our character, but the inclination of our heart toward God. Because working on your character apart from a relational pursuit of God is some kind of dry. It's legalism. It tends to legalism. It's it's rigid. It is lifeless. It's so much better to be motivated by your love for and pursuit of Him. Well, imagine, if you will, a compass. I had some clip art on here and it disappeared. But uh, you know what a compass looks like. It has a dial and four cardinal directions and a needle, a magnetic needle that always points north. Well, the compass of a believer's heart should point toward what? Toward God. To what extent does the compass of your life point toward God? Always returning to Him, no matter what's going on in your life. No matter which direction you're facing, always turning to Him. Always turning back to Him. In the simplest terms, godliness is about turning to God. Train yourself. Discipline yourself to be someone who turns to God. Back in Psalm 73, when we come to verses 13 and 14... The psalmist compass is spinning. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He has convinced himself that there is no reward for the righteous. It's useless. He's deceived himself, believing that the wicked are always at ease, when we know that's not really true of anyone. His judgment is flawed, and he is about to chuck this whole Judaism thing right into the trash can. And verse 15 is our turning point. He says, if I'd given this kind of testimony, if I had held to this confused position as truth, the truth about God, I would have betrayed believers everywhere. He confesses to the great struggle. He's being real, right? These wrestling matches with the devil's lies are exhausting, people. 
the struggle is real. Amen? So how did this psalmist's mind change? How, how did he get his perspective corrected? Well, look to verse 17. What did he do? He went into the sanctuary of God. He got himself out of that situation, away from watching those people, probably turned off his TV, his radio, the internet, his phone, his social media. He cleared his head. He doubtless opened the Word of God, and it refreshed and changed his mind. Believers, this is often the first and best step in what it means to train or discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's so easy to be tempted and frustrated by all the vain things that we can see with our eyes, right? You can see the psalmist, again, spent verses 2 through 14 looking at it, stewing on it. But faith teaches us not to look at the things that are seen, but to look at the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporal. They're passing. They're deceptive. But the things that are unseen are eternal. We see those with the eyes of faith. Faith teaches us not to look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The psalmist needed to resaturate his mind and his heart with truth, not the temporal lies he saw in the world around him. And there are two statements he, he uh, represents as true in this psalm. If you look at verse 18, when he says, Truly you set them, the ungodly, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. That ruinous result for the wicked is often unseen in the present. But it's true. God says that's the reality. The second true statement is verse 1, when he, he starts by saying what he knows best, what he's learned from the experience of Psalm 73. And he says, Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart, i.e. to the godly. He, he knows that now. Sin is pleasure for a season, but God is wonderful forever. What do we see revealed about the godliness of the psalmist from the second half of the psalm? Not just to be the, the behaviors, but the inclination of his compass-corrected heart. Not surprisingly, we find these godly characteristics to be the exact opposite of the characteristics of the ungodly. The psalmist, the godly person, has an awareness of and a desire for the presence of God. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 28, he says, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. The godly person wants God around. We take great comfort in the way that He holds our hand through life. The promise that He will never leave us or ever forsake us, Hebrews 13.5, brings us so much comfort. It is good for us to be near God. When we were rebellious and walking in sin... We lived in hiding from God. We were like Adam and Eve, fleeing from Him in the garden after their sin. We, don't, we didn't want Him around, telling us about our sin, exposing us, making us feel guilty. When it comes to talking about the reality and awareness of God's presence, one of the clearest places to turn is Psalm 139, 1 through 12. 
I'd love to read the whole passage to you. I'd love to read a part of it, but time doesn't permit this morning. But that's a terrific passage, especially on Sanctity of Life Sunday. I'd encourage you to look at that on your own this week. Psalm 139. Nowhere else in Scripture is there a more vivid, personal, and intimate expression of the nearness of God to us. God sees us. He knows us. We cannot run. We cannot hide, though sometimes we feel like doing so. But He remains near. His vision of us is not obscured by darkness or by distance, by our sin or our fear or our guilt or our weakness. For the, godlies, for the godly person, God's presence doesn't surround us to smother us or to destroy us, but to, to nurture, to teach, to protect and encourage us. Without the gospel, without the shed blood of Christ, we cannot understand in this God, God in this position as a benevolent father, as a good shepherd. He is otherwise a fearsome God of just judgment. But when we're brought near in Christ, see Ephesians 2.13, we come to know Him in this close and personal relationship. And instead of fleeing such close accompaniment, instead of running away, we begin to desire it. We invite God into every moment of our lives, every thought, every relationship, every day. And I pray that each of you will grow not only in your awareness of the reality, the very real reality of God's presence with you, because He's here, but in your desire for it, your eagerness to welcome Him into your lives, your hearts and thoughts at any and every moment, in every experience of joy or trial or temptation or victory. He loves you and He desires to have this kind of fellowship with you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. James 4.8 Well, secondly, the, the godly person has a heart to obey God. They are yielded to His will. Well, this is about obedience, but it's not so much about the straightforward particulars of doing what God commands. Like everything else, the meaningful part of obedience begins where? It's in the heart. Before we come to know Christ, our heart is willful and rebellious. We are independent. We proudly desire to be self-directed with our lives. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. The heart of the wicked is bent on rebellion. But when we come to know Christ as our Savior, our Lord, the lover of our soul, our disposition toward Him begins to soften. It begins to change least begins to change. There, there are plenty of sins and disobedient acts that we sense an immediate conviction for, and we desire to repent of these things. But as we grow in godliness, there are additional things that Christ reveals to us. Hidden rooms of our heart where additional self-will and independence are revealed calling us again to repent and turn and yield to God's good way. This is a lifelong process. I've been walking with God for many years, and the process continues in my own heart. Many needs remain. 
And as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, we, we go from not wanting anyone to tell us what to do to begin asking, pleading with Christ to please tell us how to live life. Our trust in Him and His Word grows, and we know He has wisdom. He has the words of life. The psalmist says in Psalm 25, Make me to know Thy ways, O Lord. Teach me Your paths. Lead me in Your truth and teach me. And He, he just desires to be taught by God, to be led by God. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He knows God will guide him and help him. He is confident God will speak to him and lead him every day, all the way home, all the way to glory. Look at the wisdom and insight God gave him in verse 17 when he went to the right place. He gained some important discernment. God will lead him and teach him in the way he should go. He's ready to follow, even when it hurts, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. We want him to teach us and lead us. Well, third, the godly person trusts God. He has a humble dependence on God's provision. The heart of this psalmist in Psalm 73 is of one who relies upon God at the outset, he declares that God is good, verse 1. So who is he going to rely on to provide for him when he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? He's not going to pray to any other God. He is not going to hedge his bets and pray to multiple gods so that he has all of his bases covered. He is going to depend on God alone. And he says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. He has no other hope in this life or the next. What assurance do you have of your next breath or your next heartbeat? What assurance do we have that we'll wake up tomorrow morning? Aren't we entirely dependent on God's sustaining care every single moment? Amen. Yes, and it's this humble realization that we don't even exist without His sovereign, careful, upholding, moment-by-moment -moment care. That's the foundation for trusting Him in every other potential anxiety over our needs and His provision for us. He is the Good Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The sheep depends on the shepherd for everything, for food, for water, for shelter, for rest, for protection, for affection. The sheep doesn't rob a liquor store to get what he needs. The Lord meets our needs and does so through a great abundance of friends and family, of perhaps a spouse, church, jobs, work. But we do well to recognize His hand behind all these provisions. These are the gifts. He is the giver. So as you walk each step and season of your lives, look to Him and to His hand for whatever provision it is you need, for that test at school, the class you need to pass, the degree, the job, the project, the experiment, the relationships or spouse, children, health, material provision of every kind. 
Always turn to Him. Christ provides in every accomplishment as well as we trust Him. Well, fourth, the godly person has a heart to love God supremely above all earthly treasures. The psalmist wants God to be close. He wants to follow and obey God's wisdom, and he trusts God to provide for all his needs, and he comes to love God more than anything else. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? This is a supreme and exclusive love. God calls each of you to love him. Jesus, of course, underlined the centrality of this command when he was asked the question in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, what's the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your heart, with all your soul. That's the great and foremost commandment. Has it occurred to you that this first and foremost commandment is in fact addressed to every human being? It's not just a command for Israel or for Christians. God calls upon every person everywhere to love Him. He's worthy of it. It is the fundamental obligation of every human being to love God with all that they are. So the unbeliever who has an attitude of benign apathy toward God is little different than the atheist who neglects God through complete unbelief. Both fail to love God. The individual's faith or lack thereof does not affect their obligation before God to love Him. Well, as we seek Him in love, God is gracious to reveal to us the ways in which we love Him poorly. We can come to love a lot of things more than Him. These provisions we just talked about, money or praise of men or spouse or significant other, our children, our stuff, our work, our comfort, our pleasure, or security. Mostly, we tend to love ourselves supremely. Apart from the grace of God at work in my heart, I am a Charles-aholic. I am addicted to loving myself apart from His grace. And what we don't realize is how profoundly limiting and constraining self-love is. And we make a tiny, vulnerable, disastrous world for ourselves when we love ourselves first and neglect actively loving God and others in the way He intends. Love for God is a path that leads us into every other dimension of godliness. Think about it. When you love someone, you want to be with them. The psalmist says in verse 28, it is good for me to be near God. When you love God, you desire to, when you love someone, when you love God, you desire to please them. Verse 28, I have made the Lord God my refuge. And when you love God, when you love someone, you trust them. You trust God to provide. The psalmist said, God is my portion forever. Love for God will consume all lesser affections. Love for Him will purify our hearts and lead us to obedience, to godliness as nothing else can. So where do we go from here? I promised you a little training program, I think. Let's look at the example the psalmist gives us for training ourselves in godliness. 
And remember, in the simplest of terms, godliness is about turning to God. Train yourself, discipline yourself to be one who turns to God. So here's the training regimen that I think is likely to be a whole lot more fruitful for you and your walk with God than Charles Atlas's dynamic tension ever was for me. This is about being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And the approach we see here, it's good for circumstances in addition to what we see in Psalm 73, where he was struggling with being envious of the wicked. These steps are basic to a disciplined, godly life, equipping you to resist temptations of every kind, to correct your thinking about any lies of the enemy, to direct your heart toward God whenever you're distracted by lesser things. It's no, it's no different for lust or greed or addiction or discouragement. So here's the pattern we see in the psalm. When facing any temptation or discouragement or distraction from God, go into the sanctuary of God. Separate yourself from inputs that lie, tempt, and lead you away from God. And then draw near to God. Turn to God. He'll take you from there. Let the, truth of wor- let the truth of God transform your mind. Open the Word. Saturate yourself with it. Fill your mind with truth. Well, third, confess your sins. Keep short accounts with God. This is the tough, this is the tough heart work that the psalmist despaired of in verses 13 and 14. Keep your heart clean. Wash your hands. Be stricken for your sin. Feel guilty for it. Accept rebuke when appropriate. He was tempted to think it wasn't worth it. But every day, retuning your heart to God is essential. Draw near to Him. Walk with Him. Take His hand. Let Him guide you. Invite Him to walk with you. And pursue His supreme love for Him. I can't help but think my love isn't, for Him isn't supreme enough. Pray and ask Him to give you a supreme and exceeding love for Him that, it, that exceeds the love you have for any worldly treasure. And finally, make Him your refuge. Trust Him. Wait for Him. Believe in Him in every circumstance of life. And don't miss this. At the heart and the center of a program or a training regimen, it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about turning to Him And the great reward in turning to Him is God Himself. It's Himself. A heart inclined toward Him will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, You're so good and true and faithful, merciful, gracious to us. Lord, my prayer for this people, for Grace Bible Church, is that they will be longing for your presence, seeking to follow your ways, to please you, trusting your provision for everything they need, and loving you supremely above all earthly treasures. Oh, Lord, incline our hearts to you. Help our hearts to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.